Book One, Chapter Seventeen and Eighteen of Joseph Andrews. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Dennis Sayers. Joseph Andrews, by Henry Fielding. Book One, Chapter Seventeen. A pleasant discourse between the two parsons and the bookseller, which was broke off by an unlucky accident happening in the inn, which produced a dialogue between Mrs. Towouse and her maid of no gentle kind. As soon as Adams came into the room, Mr. Barnabas introduced him to the stranger, who was, he told him, a bookseller, and would be as likely to deal with him for his sermons as any man whatever. Adams, saluting the stranger, answered Barnabas that he was very much obliged to him, that nothing could be more convenient, for he had no other business to the great city, and was heartily desirous of returning with the young man, who was just recovered of his misfortune. He then snapped his fingers, as was usual with him, and took two or three turns about the room in an ecstasy, and to induce the bookseller to be as expeditious as possible, as likewise to offer him a better price for his commodity, he assured them their meeting was extremely lucky to himself, for that he had the most pressing occasion for money at that time, his own being almost spent, and having a friend then in the same end, who was just recovered from some wounds he had received from robbers, and was in a most indigent condition. So that nothing, says he, could be so opportune for the supplying both our necessities as making an immediate bargain with you. As soon as he had seated himself, the stranger began in these words. Sir, I do not care absolutely to deny engaging in what my friend Mr. Barnabas recommends, but sermons are mere drugs. The trade is so vastly stocked with them that, really, unless they come out with the name of Whitefield or... or Wesley, or some other such great man as a bishop, or those sorts of people, I don't dare to touch, unless now it was a sermon preached on the 30th of January, or we could say in the title page, published at the earnest request of the congregation, or the inhabitants, but truly for a dry piece of sermons, I had rather be excused, especially as my hands are so full at present. However, sir, as Mr. Barnabas mentioned them to me, I will, if you please, take the manuscript with me to town, and send you my opinion of it in a very short time. Oh, said Adams, if you desire it, I will read two or three discourses as a specimen. This Barnabas, who loved sermons no better than a grocer doth figs, immediately objected to, and advised Adams to let the bookseller have his sermons, telling him, 
if he gave him a direction, he might be certain of a speedy answer, adding, he need not scruple trusting them in his possession. No, said the bookseller, if it was a play that had been acted twenty nights together, I believe it would be safe. Adams did not at all relish the last expression. He said, he was sorry to hear sermons compared to plays. Not by me, I assure you, cried the bookseller, though I don't know whether the licensing act may not shortly bring them to the same footing. But I have formerly known a hundred guineas given for a play. More shame for those who gave it, cried Barnabas. Why so, said the bookseller, for they got hundreds by it. But is there no difference between conveying good or ill instructions to mankind? said Adams. Would not an honest mind rather lose money by the one than gain it by the other? If you can find any such, I will not be their hindrance, answered the bookseller. But I think those persons who get by preaching sermons are the properest to lose by printing them. For my part, the copy that sells best will be always the best copy, in my opinion. I am no enemy to sermons, but because they don't sell, for I would as soon print one of Whitefield's as any farce whatever. Whoever prints such heterodox stuff ought to be hanged says Barnabas. Sir, said he, turning to Adams, this fellow's writings, I know not whether you have seen them, are levelled at the clergy. He would reduce us to the example of the primitive ages, forsooth, and would insinuate to the people that a clergyman ought to be always preaching and praying. He pretends to understand the scripture literally, and would make mankind believe that the poverty and low estate which was recommended to the church in its infancy, and was only temporary doctrine adapted to her under persecution, was to be preserved in her flourishing and established state. Sir, the principles of Towlin, Wilston, and all the free thinkers are not calculated to do half the mischief as those professed by this fellow and his followers. Sir, answered Adams, if Mr. Whitefield had carried his doctrine no farther than you mention, I should have remained, as I once was, his well-wisher. I am myself as great an enemy to the luxury and splendor of the clergy as he can be. I do not, more than he, by the flourishing state of the church, understand the palaces, equipages, dress, furniture, rich dainties, and vast fortunes of her ministers. Surely those things, which savor so strongly of this world, become not the servants of one who professed his kingdom was not of it. 
but when he began to call nonsense and enthusiasm to his aid, and set up the detestable doctrine of faith against good works, I was his friend no longer, for surely that doctrine was coined in hell, and one would think none but the devil himself could have the confidence to preach it. For can anything be more derogatory to the honour of God than for men to imagine that the all-wise being will hereafter say to the good and virtuous, Notwithstanding the purity of thy life, notwithstanding that constant rule of virtue and goodness in which you walked upon earth, still, as thou didst not believe everything in the true orthodox manner, thy want of faith shall condemn thee. Or, on the other side, can any doctrine have a more pernicious influence on society than a persuasion that it will be a good plea for the villain at the last day? Lord, it is true I never obeyed one of thy commandments, yet punish me not, for I believe them all. I suppose, sir, said the bookseller, your sermons are of a different kind. Ay, sir, says Adams, the contrary, I thank heaven, is inculcated in almost every page, or I should belie my own opinion, which hath always been that a virtuous and good Turk or heathen, are more acceptable in the sight of their Creator than a vicious and wicked Christian, though his faith was as perfectly orthodox as St. Paul's himself. I wish you success, says the bookseller, but must beg to be excused, as my hands are so very full at present, and indeed I am afraid you will find a backwardness in the trade to engage in a book which the clergy would be certain to cry down. God forbid, says Adams, any book should be propagated which the clergy would cry down. But if you mean by the clergy some few designing factious men who have it at heart to establish some favorite schemes at the price of the liberty of mankind, and the very essence of religion, it is not in the power of such persons to decry any book they please. Witness that excellent book called A Plain Account of the Nature and End of the Sacrament, a book written, if I may venture on the expression, with the pen of an angel, and calculated to restore the true use of Christianity, and of that sacred institution. For what could tend more to the noble purposes of religion than frequent cheerful meetings among the members of a society in which they should, in the presence of one another, and in the service of the supreme being, make promises of being good, friendly, and benevolent to each other. Now, this excellent book was attacked by a party, but unsuccessfully. At these words, Barnabas fell a-ringing with all the violence imaginable, 
upon which a servant attending, he bid him bring a bill immediately, for that he was in company, for aught he knew, with the devil himself, and he expected to hear the Alarcan, the Leviathan, or Woolston, commended, if he stayed a few minutes longer. Adams desired, as he was so much moved, at his mentioning a book which he did without apprehending any possibility of offence, that he would be so kind to propose any objections he had to it, which he would endeavour to answer. "'I propose objections,' said Barnabas. "'I never read a syllable in any such wicked book. I never saw it in my life, I assure you.' Adams was going to answer, when a most hideous uproar began in the inn. Mrs. Towouse, Mr. Towouse, and Betty, all lifting up their voices together, but Mrs. Towouse's voice, like a bass viol in a concert, was clearly and distinctly distinguished among the rest, and was heard to articulate the following sounds. Oh, you damned villain! Is this the return to all the care I have taken to your family? This the reward of my virtue! Is this the manner in which you behave to one who brought you a fortune, and preferred you to so many matches, all your betters, to abuse my bed, my own bed, with my own servant? <laughs> but I'll maul the slut, I'll tear her nasty eyes out. Was ever such a pitiful dog to take up such a mean trollop? If she had been a gentlewoman, like myself, it had been some excuse. But a beggarly, saucy, dirty servant-maid, get you out of my house, you whore! To which she added another name, which we do not care to stain our paper with. It was a monosyllable, beginning with a B and indeed was the same as if she had pronounced the words she-dog, which term we shall, to avoid offence, use on this occasion, though indeed both the mistress and the maid uttered the above-mentioned be, a word extremely disgustful to females of the lower sort. Betty had borne all hitherto with patience, and had uttered only lamentations, but the last appellation stung her to the quick. "'I am a woman as well as yourself,' she roared out, "'and no she-dog, and if I have been a little naughty, I am not the first. "'If I had been no better than I should be,' cries she, sobbing, that's no reason you should call me out of my name. My be-betters are worse than me. Huzzy, huzzy, says Mrs. Towouse. Have you the impudence to answer me? Did I not catch you, you saucy? And then again repeated the terrible word so odious to female ears. I can't bear that name, answered Betty. If I had been wicked, I am to answer for it myself in the other world. But 
I have done nothing that's unnatural, and I will go out of your house this moment, for I will never be called she-dog by any mistress in England. Mrs. Towhouse then armed herself with the spit, which was prevented from executing any dreadful purpose by Mr. Adams, who confined her arms with the strength of a wrist, which Hercules would not have been ashamed of. Mr. Towhouse, being caught, as our lawyers express it, with the manner, and having no defence to make, very prudently withdrew himself, and Betty committed herself to the protection of the hostler, who, though she could not conceive him pleased with what had happened, was, in her opinion, rather a gentler beast than her mistress. Mrs. Towhouse, at the intercession of Mr. Adams, and finding the enemy vanished, began to compose herself, and at length recovered the usual serenity of her temper, in which we will leave her, to open to the reader the steps which led to a catastrophe, common enough and comical enough, too, perhaps, in modern history, yet often fatal to the repose and well-being of families, and the subject of many tragedies, both in life and on the stage. Chapter 18 The History of Betty the Chambermaid, and an account of what occasioned the violent scene in the preceding chapter. Betty, who was the occasion of all this hurry, had some good qualities. She had good nature, generosity, and compassion, but, unfortunately, her constitution was composed of those warm ingredients which, though the purity of courts or nunneries might have happily controlled them, were by no means able to endure the ticklish situation of a chambermaid at an inn, who is daily liable to the solicitations of lovers of all complexions, to the dangerous addresses of fine gentlemen of the army, who sometimes are obliged to reside with them a whole year together, and above all are exposed to the caresses of footmen, stage-coachmen, and drawers, all of which employ the whole artillery of kissing, flattering, bribing, and every other weapon, which is to be found in the whole armory of love against them. Betty, who was but one and twenty, had now lived three years in this dangerous situation, during which she had escaped pretty well. An ensign of foot was the first person who made an impression on her heart. He did indeed raise a flame in her, which required the care of a surgeon to cool. While she burnt for him, several others burnt for her, officers of the army, young gentlemen travelling the western circuit, inoffensive squires, and some of graver character, were set afire by her charms. At length, 
having perfectly recovered the effects of her first unhappy passion, she seemed to have vowed a state of perpetual chastity. She was long deaf to all the sufferings of her lovers, till one day, at a neighbouring fair, the rhetoric of John the hostler, with a new straw hat and a pint of wine, made a second conquest over her. She did not, however, feel any of those flames on this occasion which had been the consequence of her former amour, nor, indeed, those other ill effects which prudent young women very justly apprehend from too absolute an indulgement to the pressing endearments of their lovers. This latter, perhaps, was a little owing to her not being entirely constant to John, with whom she permitted Tom Whipwell, the stage-coachman, and now and then a handsome young traveller, to share her favours. Mr. Towhouse had for some time cast the languishing eyes of affection on this young maiden. He had laid hold on every opportunity of saying tender things to her, squeezing her by the hand, and sometimes kissing her lips. For, as the violence of his passion had considerably abated to Mrs. Towhouse, so, like water, which is stopped from its usual current in one place, it naturally sought a vent in another. Mrs. Towhouse is thought to have perceived this abatement, and probably it added very little to the natural sweetness of her temper, for though she was as true to her husband as the dial to the sun, she was rather more desirous of being shown on, as being more capable of feeling his warmth. Ever since Joseph's arrival, Betty had conceived an extraordinary liking to him, which discovered itself more and more as he grew better and better, till that fatal evening, when, as she was warming his bed, her passion grew to such a height, and so perfectly mastered both her modesty and her reason, that, after many fruitless hints and sly insinuations, she at last threw down the warming-pan, and, embracing him with such eagerness, swore he was the handsomest creature she had ever seen. Joseph, in great confusion, leapt from her, and told her he was sorry to see a young woman cast off all regard to modesty, but she had gone too far to recede, and grew so very indecent that Joseph was obliged, contrary to his inclination, to use some violence to her, and, taking her in his arms, he shut her out of the room, and locked the door. How ought man to rejoice that his chastity is always in his own power, that if he hath sufficient strength of mind, he hath always a competent strength of body to defend himself, and cannot, like a poor, weak woman, be ravished against his will. 
Betty was in the most violent agitation at this disappointment. Rage and lust pulled her heart as with two strings, two different ways. One moment she thought of stabbing Joseph, the next of taking him in her arms and devouring him with kisses, but the latter passion was far more prevalent. Then she thought of revenging his refusal on herself, but whilst she was engaged in this meditation, happily death presented himself to her in so many shapes of drowning, hanging, poisoning, etc., that her distracted mind could resolve on none. In this perturbation of spirit, it accidentally occurred to her memory that her master's bed was not made. She therefore went directly to his room, where he happened at that time to be engaged at his bureau. As soon as she saw him, she attempted to retire, but he called her back, and taking her by the hand, squeezed her so tenderly, at the same time whispering so many soft things into her ears, and then pressed her so closely with his kisses, that the vanquished fair one, whose passions were already raised, and which were not so whimsically capricious that one man only could lay them, though perhaps she would have preferred that one, the vanquished fair one quietly submitted, I say, to her master's will, who had just attained the accomplishment of his bliss, when Mrs. Towhouse unexpectedly entered the room, and caused all that confusion which we have before seen, and which it is not necessary at present to take any farther notice of, since without the assistance of a single hint from us, every reader of any speculation or experience, though not married himself, may easily conjecture that it concluded with the discharge of Betty, the submission of Mr. Towhouse, with some things to be performed on his side by way of gratitude for his wife's goodness in being reconciled to him, with many hearty promises never to offend any more in the like manner, and lastly, his quietly and contentedly bearing to be reminded of his transgressions as a kind of penance once or twice a day during the residue of his life. End of chapters 17 and 18, and end of book 1. Read by Dennis Ayers in Modesto, California, for LibriVox.